the words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the Gospel according to St. John in chapter 7 and verse 16. The 16th verse in the 7th chapter of the Gospel according to St. John. Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his that sent me. Now, as this is an answer to something that has gone before, let me start reading again at verse 14. Now, about the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. And the Jews marveled, saying, How knoweth this fellow, this man, letters, having never learned? Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his that sent me. And then he goes on to say, If any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. He that speaketh of himself seeketh his own glory, but he that seeketh his glory that sent him, the same is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. But our verse this evening is the 16th. Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his that sent me. Now this, uh, you remember, was uttered, these words were uttered by our Lord by way of reply to the way in which the Jews, meaning by that the scribes and Pharisees and the doctors of the law, the Jewish teachers, were dismissing him and his teaching on academic grounds. Now, those of us who were here last Sunday evening will remember that we considered that then. We read that the Jews marveled, saying, How hath this fellow learning? Having never learned, how has he got letters? Who is this fellow who ventures to set himself up as a teacher? He's never been trained, doesn't belong to the Pharisees. He's an outsider. And because he hadn't had their training and didn't belong to their schools, uh, wasn't academic as it were, they dismiss him and his teaching with scorn and sarcasm and derision. And here our Lord, I say, is uh, speaking to them in terms of that and is making his reply to them. Now here, it seems to me, is a, a very fundamental question. Indeed, I want to try to show you this evening that in many senses and in many respects, this is the fundamental question with regard to the whole matter of the Christian faith and our belief in it. Now, we've been studying this chapter for a number of Sunday evenings, and I've been indicating all along that its great message is that it is a study of unbelief, starting with the unbelief of his own brothers and then continuing with the unbelief of the Jewish authorities here in Jerusalem. And I am saying, I am asserting, that in this whole matter of believing or unbelieving in the Lord Jesus Christ, this very matter which he deals with in this verse we are looking at tonight seems to me to be the most fundamental matter of all. So our Lord emphasizes it and underlines it. The trouble with the Jews, he is saying in effect, 
is that their whole approach to him was completely and entirely wrong. And because it was their fundamental approach, their whole approach to him was wrong. Because of that, obviously, they couldn't understand him and they couldn't understand nor accept his teaching. Now, in another connection, you remember our Lord says about these same people that the trouble with them was that they were teaching for commandments the traditions of men. He says, you claim to be teachers of the law, but you're not teaching the law. What you are teaching is human traditions. And it was true, of course, that is precisely what they were doing. Instead of teaching the law, they were preaching and teaching the comments and the commentaries of learned Jews upon the law. And they had twisted it into something that was even a denial of the law. You, he says, are teaching for the commandments, the traditions of men. Now here what he is saying is this, that they were substituting for the truth of God their own understanding and their own ability. Here they were, they claimed to be teachers. They claimed to be teachers of God's truth. And what he's saying to them in effect is this, he says, you're not teaching God's truth at all. You are teaching your own understanding. You're teaching your own ability. You are rejoicing in your intellectual positions. And it is that that leads you to fail to realize who I am and to reject me and my teaching. Now that is the very essence of the charge that he brings against these people. Here they are, they marvel at his teaching, they couldn't help doing that. After all, it was a phenomenon. Here is a man who's just a carpenter, come up from Nazareth to the feast, the Feast of Tabernacles. And there he is, beginning to teach halfway through the feast. And in spite of themselves, they could not help marveling at the way in which he spoke and the things he said. And yet, you see, they dismissed it all, as we've seen, because he didn't belong to them. He hadn't been trained. This fellow, this outsider, how can he possibly teach that which is right when he's never been taught? Yet I say that though they did marvel at his teaching, they nevertheless, for that reason, they rejected him. And that prejudice and that pride of theirs blinded them to his glorious person and to his astonishing message. Well now, my friends, I'm calling your attention to all this, not because we are making a kind of theoretical or academic study of this which happened nearly 2,000 years ago. I say again that the whole critical position of the world tonight doesn't allow us to indulge in such luxuries. I'm calling your attention to this this evening because it is, as I see things, the most urgent matter before mankind at this moment. This is the most urgent problem for every one of us who is in this congregation. Now there have been times when people have just been slack with regard to the application of Christian truth. I could give you illustrations of that from past history. People more or less believed in God. They more or less believed the Bible. Well, but they were rather godless and irreligious. Why? Well, they didn't put it into practice. It wasn't that they denied it, but they didn't practice it. They were slack 
They were indolent, they were lazy, and so they became immoral. But that isn't the position today. The position today is that the vast masses and majority of the people are rejecting the whole truth and are not even considering it. And why? Well, it is because, like these Jews of old, their whole approach to this truth is wrong. And because their whole approach is wrong, obviously they're in difficulties about particular details. But that, I think you will agree with me, is the position at the present time. Now let me put it in a nutshell, as it were, by putting it like this. Ask the average man today why he is not a Christian. And I think the answer he'll probably give you is this. Ah, but he says, it's exploded. The great people no longer believe in it. He says, the great philosophers, the people who speak on the third program, on the wireless, and on the brains trust, and so on, these great philosophers and scientists and thinkers, none of them believe in it. Well, obviously, therefore, it's, it's nonsense, it's rubbish. That's his idea, that in the past times, past centuries, when people were still ignorant and illiterate and hadn't had modern educational advantages, they believed all this as primitive people still have their religions and believe in them. But now, he says, everybody who's got learning, the great brains, the great minds, they all reject Christianity. None of them believe in it at all. So he follows suit, and because the authorities and the great brains don't believe in it, he doesn't believe in it. I think you'll agree that that is the position. Very well, then, I want to try to show you that if that is the position, it is precisely analogous to the position of these Jews who there dismissed our Lord and his teaching and to whom he said, my teaching is not mine, but his that sent me. What is he saying? Well, what he's doing is this. He is exposing their false approach to him and to the truth. And then he displays to them the true and the right approach. The two things are to be found in this one verse, which is our text at this moment. Now then, this, of course, is a matter that's not confined to this text. This is something that you'll find in many places in the scripture. We had perhaps what is the classical statement of it, in that uh, chapter which we had read at the beginning, the second chapter of the Apostle Paul's first epistle uh, to the church at Corinth. The same thing is taught exactly there. My dear friend, there is nothing more important for you under heaven at this moment in this world than to understand this matter. Your whole eternal future, your salvation depends upon your understanding this matter. If you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and his teaching, you are saved. If you don't, you are damned. And it doesn't matter who you are, nor what you are, nor however learned, nor clever, however knowledgeable. If you do not accept this person and his teaching, you are damned, you are lost. And if you die like that, you will go to perdition. There is nothing I say in the world that is more important than this one question. Do we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ or do we not? Now then I say that here he deals with this particular rejection of him in terms of knowledge and of learning 
and of academic position, the typical position of the modern man in his rejection of the Christian faith. What does he say about it? Well, the great principle which he lays down is this, that his teaching is something which is entirely different from every other kind of teaching. It belongs to a new order. It is in a category entirely on its own. How does he put it? Well, he puts it like this. He says, my teaching is not mine own. What he means is this. They had already said to him, it isn't ours. This fellow, they said, how are this fellow letters having never learned? What's he talking about? You see, he wasn't saying the things they taught. So they said, this isn't our teaching. And he says, in effect, you're quite right. It isn't your teaching. But you know, he says, I'll tell you another thing. It isn't mine either. It isn't yours. It isn't mine. In other words, it isn't human at all. Now, he says, you've just been saying that this is my own idea. That I'm just a fellow, an upstart, a man who set himself up. And that I'm just putting forward my own theories and ideas, which in your opinion are wrong. He says, you're entirely mistaken. These are not my ideas at all. They're no more mine than they're yours. You're right, they're not yours, but you must equally understand they're not mine. I haven't thought these things out, he says. These are not my theories, suppositions, conjectures, speculations. I'm not standing before you in my own authority. My teaching is not mine, but his that sent me. He says, the trouble with you people is that you're thinking on the human level. You're still, still thinking in terms of men and men's ideas and men's notions and men's understanding. Can't you see, he says, that this is something that belongs to another realm altogether. It doesn't go into your categories. This is something apart. Well, in other words, he's saying there what the Apostle Paul, following him, said to the church at Corinth. He says, uh, how be it, uh, we speak wisdom among them that are perfect. And yet, not the wisdom of this world, or the princes of this world that come to naught. But we speak the hidden wisdom, the wisdom from God. You see, it isn't earthly, it isn't human, it doesn't belong to the schools, it doesn't fit into the categories, it's in a class apart, it's altogether, not mine, but him, but his that sent me. Now, you know, this is the first principle, and uh, to me and to all who are Christians in this congregation, it's so perfectly obvious. And yet, you know, it is the failure to understand that that accounts for the fact that most people who are not Christians today are not Christians. They go wrong at that very approach. They go wrong on the very foundation and basis. They will persist in regarding this as if it were one of a number of philosophies. And they betray that in their talk. They talk about uh, the great teachers of the centuries. They talk about Abraham and Moses and Isaiah and Jeremiah and John the Baptist and Jesus and Confucius and Buddha and Socrates and Plato, etc., etc. You see what they've done? They've put him into series. And already they've gone wrong. They're fatally wrong already. They cannot possibly be right at any point because they're fundamentally wrong. Now then, there is the fundamental proposition. 
And I would put it therefore to you like this. There are people in this congregation who attend lectures. Lectures on science, lecture on art, poetry, philosophy, sociology, medicine, law. Yes, theology and many another subject. But if you don't realize, my friend, that here and now you're doing something unique, something which is absolutely different from all that. Well, there is no hope for you until you do come to realize that. This is not in series with the world and its learning. It is altogether different. Now then, let me work that out in detail. Our Lord says here, as I understand it, that therefore we have to realize two great things, and the first is negative and the second positive. What we have to realize negatively about this truth of his and about him is this. That knowledge of this teaching is not the result of human ability and power. That's the first thing. It is because it is essentially different from all other knowledge. So I say that knowledge of this teaching is not the result of human ability and human power. Let me illustrate what I mean. First, it is a knowledge that is not arrived at in that way by means of human ability and intellect and understanding. And there you see how essentially different it is from every other knowledge. Here am I speaking through a microphone. How has this become possible? Well, it has become possible, hasn't it, as the result of human searching. Human investigation, human experimentation. All these wonderful gifts and powers, the light that is here shining down upon me, and all these modern conveniences and advantages, they are all the result of human endeavor, human inquiry, and human discovery. It's our great boast in this century, isn't it? That we've made such wonderful discoveries. We have discovered that the atom is not the ultimate unit. We've been able to divide it. Marvelous. How did we arrive? Experimentation, inquiry, the use of ingenuity and man's inquiring mind and following his understanding. All our great blessings have come as the result of human ability, human understanding, human effort and endeavor. But not this. This hasn't come in that way. That's what our Lord was saying to those men. He says, I haven't discovered this. It's been given me, not mine, but the Father's who sent me. And here is why people stumble, you see. They will persist in approaching this as if it was, I say, a matter of human discovery, as all these sciences and arts of necessity are. But let me say a second thing. It is not only achieved as the result of human effort, it is not even accessible to human ability and intellect alone. And therefore the possession of this knowledge is not dependent upon natural ability. You remember how the apostle puts that. He says the princes of this world didn't know him. Now the princes of this world didn't mean simply kings and people like that. He means the intellectual princes, the philosophers and all the others. 
The men who had all the advantages of culture in that age. He says the princes of this world didn't know him. And thereby he is saying this is a knowledge that is not accessible to mere natural ability and human understanding. You see, it's entirely different from the others. If you haven't got a certain amount of brain, you'll never be as great scientist. You need brain power to understand philosophy. You can't handle the terms. You can't understand what they're talking about. You've got to have certain natural gifts before they can impart truth to you. But it isn't the case here. The princes didn't know him. There were others lacking their abilities who did know him. It's an entirely different order of knowledge, you see. And I therefore put as my third point under this heading this. This is a knowledge that is not affected in any sense by the advance of all other knowledge. Now, this is a drastic statement, isn't it? You see, the proud boast of the 20th century is this, our superiority. Why? Why are we superior? What is the basis of our superiority? Oh, it is because we've advanced so much upon former centuries. They were all right as far as they went, yes, but they didn't know what we knew. No, they lacked our latest discoveries, our latest advances, the result of our latest researches. There is nothing we feel that is so wonderful as the advance of knowledge. Now, let me be perfectly in agreement. As a natural man and discussing secular knowledge, that is absolutely right. A man today who refuses to go to a newly qualified or a well-qualified modern doctor and who still goes to a witch doctor, well, he's just a fool. There's nothing else to say about him. The advance of knowledge is a good thing. It's beneficent. Obviously, knowledge grows from age to age when you're talking about secular matters. But that isn't true of this knowledge. The passing of the centuries, the results of research and inquiry, the advancement of knowledge and of culture makes not the slightest difference to this. Here we are in the 20th century. And we are looking back at someone who lived nearly 2,000 years ago. A carpenter who had never been to the schools and had never been trained. We are looking back at the cross on Calvary's hill. But you say, look how the centuries have moved and the world has advanced. I say we are still looking back. In the cross of Christ I glory, towering o'er the wrecks of time. Time has nothing to do with this. And all the latest advances and researches, I say, are irrelevant and make no difference at all. I'm asserting this from this pulpit. That though we are living nearly 2,000 years after the Apostle Paul lived, we know a great deal less about the Lord Jesus Christ and about God than he knew. You make a review of the history of the church. This is what you'll find. A man like St. Paul, any other saint, these are the men who come to the knowledge. Doesn't matter when they live. It's irrespective of time. It's irrespective of the advance of secular knowledge. Why? Well, because it is a knowledge that isn't in that series at all. It's a different type of knowledge. 
It's got nothing to do with mere intellect alone. It's got nothing to do with the advance of understanding and knowledge in every other respect. This is in a category which is quite apart and is never the result of human ability and human power. It's never arrived at in that way. But I must add a second thing to this. It is never understood in that way either. Not only can the natural unaided human mind never discover it, the natural unaided human mind and intellect can never understand it. And it matters not at all how great a man's ability is, how great his learning, how wonderful his training, whether he's been through all the schools or not, it makes not the slightest difference at this point. The princes of the world did not know him. They had the mental capacity. They had all the advantages. But in this matter, it did not avail them at all. Why? Well, as the apostle argued there, you remember, if I may say so, so brilliantly listen to him. What man knoweth the things of a man, save the spirit of man which is in him? That's true, isn't it? There has got to be a kind of affinity. There has got to be a kind of understanding. There has got to be the possible means of communication. What man understandeth the things of a man, save the spirit of man which is in him, so, he says, even so, the things of God knoweth no man but the spirit of God. Oh, our Lord had already said all this, hadn't he, to Nicodemus? Who was trying with his human mind and intellect to understand what our Lord was saying about regeneration? Nicodemus, he says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Flesh is not appropriate here. And human ability belongs to the flesh. It's all right along that level. You can understand your science, your arts, your politics and all the rest. With your human mind, with the flesh. It belongs to the flesh. But this is spirit. And your flesh is useless. You must be born again. You need the spirit. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. So I draw this deduction that not only is this knowledge not accessible to human understanding and intellect and ability, is not the result of inquiry and investigation and discovery. It is, I say, a knowledge and a truth that the natural unaided human intellect cannot receive. The natural mind receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he, for they are spiritually discerned. Had you realized that, my friend? You can't have realized it, or you wouldn't be quoting your Bertrand Russells and your Professor Ayers and these great men who speak so learnedly and deride and dismiss Christianity. You can't have understood that, because you're relying upon human ability. You say these great men don't believe. But you shouldn't be surprised at that. That's the flesh. 
And that which is born of the flesh is flesh. But that which is born of the spirit is spirit. They cannot because these things are spiritually discerned. That's no, that's no judgment upon their ability. I'm ready, if you like, to grant that they conceivably are the greatest intellects in this country at the present time. But I'm just saying this, that the greatest intellect in the universe is useless here. This is a knowledge that a man cannot receive solely in terms of his natural human ability. But, oh, I must go even a step further than that. And my next step is this. Reliance upon human ability and power is the chief obstacle to the obtaining of this knowledge. I hope you're following me. Not only will natural ability and power not bring a man to this knowledge, it is reliance upon such powers that constitutes the very greatest obstacle to the obtaining of this knowledge. That's what our Lord was saying to these people. It was because of their pride of their knowledge, their understanding and their schools that they were deriding him and dismissing him and rejecting him. Now, oh, this is such a vital point. God, give me strength and power to make it clear. There is no single greater obstacle to becoming a Christian than pride of intellect, pride of knowledge, and pride of understanding. Let us listen to the Apostle Paul putting this to the Corinthians. He says, you see, you're calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. Why has he done all this, etc.? That no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him are you in Christ Jesus, who is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, him that glorieth, he that glorieth, let him glory in the law, who has given it all to him. That's his teaching. And, of course, the apostle again repeats it in that second chapter of that first epistle to the Corinthians. He says, this uh, natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. Why not? Because they are foolishness unto him. Ah, oh, says the natural man. This is just monstrous, of course. While I know that the whole of life depends upon ability and knowledge and understanding, and that the greatest benefactors the world has ever known have been its greatest intellects, here I'm suddenly asked to reverse all that. And in this matter of salvation, I'm asked to believe that a carpenter is the son of God. I'm asked to believe that by dying upon a cross he saves the world. Nonsense! Foolishness! The natural man. What nonsense this was to the Greek philosophers with their speculation and their analyses and their comparisons and contrasts and all their subtle dialectic. This is rubbish, nonsense, fit for simple primitive people, women and children. But for a man, an intellect, it's an insult, so the modern men say. And that is why, you see, they didn't believe it and didn't begin to enjoy its blessings. It was their pride of intellect and knowledge and understanding that barred them to the truth 
and kept them outside. Oh, but we needn't rely only upon the Apostle Paul for this teaching. Listen to the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, saying it himself. There he is at the end of the 11th chapter of Matthew's Gospel, and he's speaking to his Father in heaven, and this is what he says. I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent, and hast revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. I'm not saying this. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou hast hid these things. He doesn't show them to the wise and prudent. Why not? Because they're proud of their wisdom and their prudence. Because they rely upon it. Because they stand up to him. And he shuts the truth from them. He hides it from them. Don't you see it, my dear friend? It is your very reliance upon intellect, knowledge, understanding, wisdom, and your reliance upon it that is the supreme barrier to the knowledge of this precious, blessed, saving truth. That is why the wise and prudent don't believe it. And nobody should be surprised at that. If there is a Christian in this congregation who is at all worried because the great physicists and scientists and philosophers don't believe the gospel, you know, I begin to wonder whether you are a Christian at all. They cannot believe it and never will believe it until they've been humbled and have become as little children. This knowledge is not accessible to intellect. And pride of intellect and reliance upon knowledge and learning constitutes the supreme obstacle to receiving it and believing it. Does that mean then, says someone, that Christianity is only for unintelligent people? Obviously it doesn't, but what it does mean is this. That however great or however small the intellect, it doesn't matter. What does matter is to become as little children and to submit ourselves to the teaching of the Son of God. And so the history of the church shows you that the giant intellects like Paul and Augustine and Calvin and Luther and all the rest of them, these majestic intellects and little children and illiterate and ignorant people rejoicing together in the same truth. Very well, there is the negative teaching. We must be clear that this is a teaching of an entirely different order and that it in no sense and in no way depends upon our human natural abilities and resources and understandings. But let me say a word about the positive side. It isn't that sort of truth. My teaching is not mine. Well, what is it? His that sent me. Oh, here it is. The glorious biblical principle of revelation. Not mine. I haven't thought it out. I haven't conceived it. I haven't imagined it. I haven't aspired to it. I haven't discovered it. No, no. Not mine, but his that sent me. Revelation. 
given by God. Oh, this is the whole case of the Bible. That's what the Bible is. It's God's revelation. It is God revealing himself and the truth concerning himself and the truth concerning man and his predicament and his needs and God's way of salvation. It is God revealing it all, God giving it all, not man finding it, discovering, God giving it. He's not sent me. That is the whole message of the Bible. That's the whole of the Old Testament, isn't it? How do we know anything about the origin of life in this world and about the world itself? Well, the author of the epistle to the Hebrews tells us that we have arrived at it by faith. By faith we believe that God, there at the beginning, created all things. That wasn't human speculation. They didn't speculate like that in those days. You know, God revealed it. In the beginning, God. And then, you see, you come to an account of a calamity, a fall, and men's in trouble, and men's in misery, and he's made a shambles of his world, as it were. What's going to happen? Does man begin to prepare a scheme and a plan? Does he begin to organize salvation? No, no. There is men accompanied by the woman in the garden, frightened, terrified, alarmed, trying to shield and to cover themselves with those fig leaves. And suddenly they hear the voice of the Lord God in the garden in the cool of the day. What's happening? Oh, he's come down to talk to them. He's beginning to speak to them. He gives them a revelation. And he gives them a revelation, you see, of why they are as they are, what he's going to do to them, because they've done what they've done. And the only hope for them, the seed of the woman... After the enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, the seed of the woman shall bruise the serpent's head. Here's a hope. How did men know that? Revelation, God gave it. And you can work your way through the whole of the Old Testament and you'll find the same thing. God coming down and giving revelations concerning himself and his purpose, calling Abram, turning him into a nation, giving that nation the law, the supreme manifestation of himself and his character, and how he is to be met and approached, and how we can receive blessings from him. Did man arrive? Of course he didn't. God revealed. Every writer says that. Every one of them. Then read the message of your psalmists and your prophets. What is it all? Well, they all say that God has given this to them, has revealed it to them. That's the whole of your Old Testament. Not my teaching, says every one of them. My teaching is not mine own. The burden of the Lord came unto me. The voice of the Lord spake. And often with great reluctance, these men simply reported what God had said to them. It's revelation. It's knowledge given by God, not aspired unto or attained by men. And then you come to the New Testament. And you read the pages of your four Gospels. And what are they? Well, this is what they are, says the author of the epistle to the Hebrews again. God who spake in diverse forms and manners in times past, and to the fathers by the prophets hath in these last days spoken unto us in his Son, the God who reveals truth, 
has even sent his only begotten son, no longer servants, prophets, great and noble men though they are. God hath spoken in his son, the one who is the express image of his person, and the bright express image and the brightness of his very person. He has come, God in the flesh, speaking unto us. No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten that is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him, led him out, displayed him. God is speaking unto us, revealing himself. That's why the Son said on this occasion, My teaching is not mine, but his that sent me. Ah, you blind Jews, he says in effect, Proud of your calling and of your academic attainments and of your schools and your arguments. Look at me again. Can you explain me in human terms? Am I but a carpenter? My teaching is not mine. Well, what then? Oh, I'm someone who's been sent. Sent out of heaven to us from eternity into time. From glory to a world of sin and shame. I've been sent. I am among you as one sent. I am the emissary of my father. That's what he was saying. It's revelation, my friend. It is the truth of God coming to men, not men arriving at truth as the result of his own efforts. And you know exactly the same thing is true of the remainder of the New Testament. These apostles claim divine inspiration. And so when they prophesy with regard to the future of the world, of the calamity that is coming and the return of the Son of God to judgment and the end of the age, what they're saying is, my teaching is not mine, but his that sent me. When it pleased God, says Paul, to reveal his Son in me, and to me, he says, the message was given, the revelation, the dispensation of the gospel committed unto me. He says, it isn't mine. They thought in Athens he was a babbler. He says, no, this is revealed. I am but a reporter. I am but a voice, as John the Baptist had said. This is the claim of the Bible from beginning to end. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. It is God-breathed. It isn't man arriving at it. It's God breathing it out. Holy men of God, says Peter, spake as they were moved and carried along by the Holy Ghost. No scripture, no prophecy of old came by private interpretation. It isn't a man excogitating his own ideas. It isn't a seer who stands on tiptoe and has an insight. No, no. No prophecy came in old time as the result of the will of man. But holy men of God spake as they were moved and carried along by the Holy Spirit. My teaching is not mine, but his that sent me. This is the truth of God. This isn't man speculating. It is God speaking. God revealing himself. But I add this to it. Not only is this truth given to us by God, but the very ability to recognize that and to receive it is also given by God. The natural man cannot receive it. 
It is foolishness unto him, neither can he, for it is spiritually discerned. The princes of this world did not know it, says Paul. How do we know it? Here's his answer. But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit. For the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. Listen again. Now he says, we have received not the Spirit that is of the world, but the Spirit that is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. The Spirit of the world wouldn't help us to know them and to receive them. But the Spirit of God has. Man without the Spirit is blind. He cannot receive it. He's blinded by the God of this world. He needs to be born again. He needs a new life, as the Lord put it to Nicodemus. The wind bloweth where it listeth. Thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh, nor whither it goeth. So... Is every one that is born of the Spirit? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. No man cometh unto me except my heavenly Father, which hath sent me. Draw him! We are blind, we are darkened, we are dead in trespasses and sins, and we need to be quickened. We need the light and the unction and the power of the Spirit before we can recognize this as the truth of God and receive it. That is his teaching. My teaching is not mine, but his that sent me. Given by God and the ability to receive it. Given by God. My dear friend, as I close, I want to ask a question. Do you thank God for this? That's the question. What's your reaction to this teaching? Are you like those Jews who said, what is this? Or do you thank God for it? It's one or the other. Let me tell you why you ought to thank God for it. I'll tell you why I thank God for it. Here's my first reason. I thank God for this because it is the truth of God. This is not speculation. This is God and God's truth. This has authority. This is eternal. This is everlasting truth. It is the truth. Why do I thank God for that? Oh, I'll tell you why. All other truth is relative. I've reminded you that the modern man looks back with a certain amount of patronizing on previous centuries and previous knowledge. Ah, oh, he said they were all right as far as they went, but not only that, there is nothing that scholarship so delights in as exploding what was formerly taught. Who holds today the view of physics that was held 50 years ago? That old mechanical view of physics and that old mechanical view of the whole of life. They laugh at it today. Oh, no, no, they say everything is life. They ridicule that the old theories have gone. Poor old Newton, his theory is gone. Einstein knocked it out, thrown it through the window. Knowledge is advancing and the old is always rejected. Ah, do you know why I thank God for this truth? Because it is the truth of God. 
And because it's always going to be true. If I believed your modern philosophers, I would know for certain that in 50 years' time, what they are saying now would be proved to be wrong. Isn't that right? They scoff at the theories of 50 years ago. They say that was all rubbish. And I know that the men in 50 years' time who follow them will say the same about them. How can I risk and bank my whole life and its eternal future upon such a foundation? Are you prepared to bank your whole life and your whole eternal future upon such a shifting foundation, my friend? You say these are great intellects. I know, but the men of 50 years ago were great intellects. And the ones 100 years ago were great intellects. But they've been proved to be wrong. Are you going to risk it on human understanding and authority? You're building your house on very shifting sand. And it will most certainly collapse. And great will be the fall thereof. And all this modern civilization that bases itself on human ability. That's my one reason. Here is God revealing the old truth which is still modern. Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. The passing of the centuries doesn't touch him. But I thank God for this for a second reason. Here is the truth. Here is the only truth that meets all my needs and answers all my problems. I say there is none other. If I want speculation, I go to these modern giants, these modern intellectual giants. But you know what I want, my dear friend, is not speculation or theoretical knowledge. Do you know what I want first and foremost? I want to know that my past sins can be forgiven. I can't get rid of them. They come back at me. Try as I will to forget them, I can't. With all the modern pleasures and advantages and all the reading and the films and the television, I can't. I go to bed, I shut my eyes. They rise up and there they are, mocking, jeering, taunting, accusing. My past! What about my past sins? Well, I just invite you. Go and consult your modern authorities. Go and ask your clever, clever speculating philosophers. Ask them to give you peace and rest of conscience. And they can't do it. They don't know. They try to explain it away, but it doesn't satisfy you. And then I long for knowledge of God. The supreme being that's at the back of everything. The Lord God who created all. I'd like to know him. I go to them and ask for help. They can't give it me. They don't know him themselves. What else do I want? Well, I want to know the real meaning of life in this world. I want to know what man is. I want to know the meaning of existence and life. What is it? And they can't tell me, except they tell me this, that I'm merely a reasoning animal, that I've evolved out of that primitive slime. What's it all for? They don't know. They don't see any sense or meaning in it themselves. Julian Huxley says, there is no purpose. The great skeptic philosophers and historians say the same thing. There's no meaning in it all. It's all just stuff and nonsense. No meaning in life. 
gave no answer to give me. And then I want some help and strength and aid with my moral problems. How can I get rid of the thing that gets me down and makes me ashamed of myself? How can I live in a manner worthy of the name of man and be able to look at myself in the mirror without a sense of shame and of sorrow, moral power, moral liberty? I go to them and I find they haven't got it themselves. I read the accounts of their lives as they pass through the divorce courts and as they live in adultery and immorality, some of them with their mistresses. They don't help me. They can't help themselves. With all their learning and their knowledge, they can't meet my deepest needs. They can't answer my profoundest questions. And then I know I've got to die. And I want to know how can a man die without being afraid? How can a man look into that unknown future without quivering and trembling and being alarmed? What of the future beyond? That's what I want to know. Is there eternal happiness possible or is it eternal misery? They've got nothing to tell me. They don't know. But here is one and here is knowledge which speaks authoritatively to me on all these questions, answers them all, solves my problem. My teaching, he says, is not mine, but him that sent me. He sent me into the world from him and sent me to took unto me human nature. He sent me to the cross to die. God hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. God hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Him that sent me to die for your sins. He's bound them. He's taken their punishment. I know I am forgiven. Here's the answer. Here's the knowledge I want. He tells me with authority. He reveals God to me as my father. He shows me the meaning of life, that this life is but a pilgrimage and a journey in the direction of heaven. He gives me new life. He gives me strength and power by his spirit. He holds me by the hand. He aids me in the hour of temptation. He has taken sting, the sting out of death, so that I can face death in the grave and say, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be unto God, who giveth me the victory through Jesus Christ. He's conquered all, and I can look through death to the land of glory that awaits me beyond. The blessed hope. The vision of God. And the endless joys of life with God throughout the un known and unending ages of eternity. Oh, I rejoice in it for that reason. It's not only authoritative and unchanging. It solves my problem, answers my questions. But you know, I sometimes think that my supreme reason for rejoicing in it is this. Because of its character, because it doesn't depend on me in any sense, my ability, knowledge, understanding, effort, or anything, but is entirely given of God, it is possible to all. 
Ah, but because this teaching is not man's, but God's. Given by God and the ability to receive it, given by God, it is possible to all. I can speak to the most benighted pagan, the deepest dyed sinner in the universe, full of hope and assurance. Indeed, I speak to him with greater hope than I do to the philosopher and the scientist, proud and arrogant in his human fleshly knowledge. It is possible to all because it is given by God through Jesus Christ, his Son, by the power of the Holy Spirit. My dear friend, I end by asking you a question. Have you believed this teaching? Have you believed the teaching of the Son of God? Are you going to risk and jeopardize your eternal future? In terms of modern speculation that will be proved to be wrong in a few years and reject the truth of God?